0: that God would now speak to us through His Word. You may be seated. And I'd like to ask you, if you would, to take out your Bible and turn with me to Micah. You will need your Bible. Go ahead and turn with me to Micah. And uh, if you're new to us today, there's a red pew Bible that's in front of you. You can look at the table of contents in the front and uh, find where Micah is. If somehow you slipped past our guards, I mean our ushers, uh, you may need to get a sermon outline. And if you'll just lift your hand, they'll hand one to you. Our church studies the Bible because God wants us to know what He says. It's not that we want to simply study and and gain knowledge for ourselves alone, but we study God's Word in order to know Him and to make Him known. So this morning we come to the book of Micah once again. In fact, we come for the last time to the book of Micah uh, in this sermon series. I hope many years ahead, we will come to it many other times as we reference it, but we have uh, studied 14 messages so far, and we come to the last one. Now I have to be honest with you, as I was looking at this message and seeing the glory of it, I was a little concerned that you might think, oh, the last one. You know, 14 messages in uh, in the uh, minor prophet of the Old Testament. A lot of things that we're not used to, you know, many things in the New Testament are a little bit more um, easily approached, and so we've been really devoting ourselves in this series, and um, I thought as I start to preach and as I start to say to you all, this is the last one, some of you might come across this, this finish line um, just kind of walking through But I had this image in my mind. Does anybody know who the guy is on the right? Do you know anybody know who that guy is? Think 1924, the Olympics in Paris, 1924, 400 meter gold medalist Eric Little. Eric Little in the great movie Chariots of Fire, many of you remember that movie, it was a great film on his life. Um, I remember that was the first time I saw the importance of how you finish, how you finish a race. And you know, very often as they, they come running, they don't, in something, a race as short as the 400 meter, it's usually very close, and you crum, come across the line pressing with everything you have, and very often you would cast your, your chest and your head forward. That split second could mean the difference between being first and being second, right? Well, we see that in this athlete as well. Look at the energy by which he's going through that line. And uh, I love this one. Look at these gals. Go and at it, and you see the joy on her face as she blasts through to the finish line. Well, this morning, I want us to run like that in Micah, okay? So let's don't finish um, in, a, in a slothful way. Um, this message and these words are too glorious For us to miss the power of them this morning, I want to ask you to just come engage in every way that we might remember. Now, some of you are brand new to us, and you've come in on the last message of a series. Well, we're going to just help you still get a lot out of this by reviewing just a little bit. And then we, as a group, are going to review really the whole message of Micah in a way that we haven't done so far. Notice here with me the review. The prophecy of Micah is three prophecy cycles, and church family, what do they have in them? They have in them God's what? Judgment, but also his his mercy. We see that over and over again. Not only as judgment. Many people think of the minor prophets as only being prophecies of judgment, but that's a gross misunderstanding of prophecy literature throughout the Bible. We see that God brings judgment, but also He brings glorious mercy, as we're going to see so beautifully this morning. Notice the setting is this. The people of Israel are in rebellion and have sinned against God. This is the human condition. This is living in the flesh. And perhaps even for believers in Jesus Christ, we can be followers of our Lord Jesus Christ, and yet we still deal with with this sinful world, and we still deal with the fallenness of our flesh, and we still, even though maybe we have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, we still deal with this battle of sin in our quest towards sanctification in Christ. But let's look at this message that comes from Micah from the Lord. And remember with me, these, this isn't really Micah's message so much as all of these seven chapters that we've studied have been the Lord's words to his people. This is the word of God. This was the word of the Lord coming to Micah, and it's the Micah, it's the message that he preached. Well, what have we studied in this? And some of this will cue some things in your mind from the weeks that we've studied. Look at number one. God's kingdom comes through his keeping his covenants. He keeps his covenants with Abraham, Moses, David, and all of Israel. Now, the many of you, they have not been taught about the covenants of the Old Testament, and it's so very critically important that we see the big picture because you remember on the night before Jesus would be crucified, he holds up the cup, and he says, now this is what? The, what did he call it? He held it up and he said, this is the new covenant of what? my blood this is the new covenant of my blood and this new covenant would be the fulfillment of all of these covenants perfectly this would be the beautiful picture that finally the final sacrifice is going to be made and the one who could keep covenant with god has come and he's doing it for our benefit and he is going to lay down his life for our benefit. So, as we are studying the Bible, listen to this, we need to see that God is moving through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. He's moving all through Scripture, showing us His salvation. And that's what the covenants are about. It's about God working through human history, showing us that He is a God of mercy, grace, and salvation. And you can, I've left the references here. This would be great homework tonight or this week to go back and pick out those covenants that God made with Abraham, Moses, David, and all of Israel. Look at number two with me. Micah accuses Israel's civil and religious leaders of crimes against the Mosaic Covenant. So he is, he is heralding that the judges and the kings and the magistrates, and all of those that are, that are in leadership in Israel, that they have led the people wrong. And it's not just, listen, it's not just about the civil leaders that led the nation wrong. It's also their religious leaders. Some of you remember back that we looked at the fact that the preachers of the day would often say to the people, oh, it's not really that bad. It's, you know, don't worry about that. Yes, your sin, you know, but but it's, you know, it's really not that bad. And they would tell the people what they, the people wanted to hear instead of what God had said. And so we see that Micah's message or God's message through Micah is saying, you have broken the Mosaic covenant. You have broken the law of the Torah. And he sentences them to punishment according to its curses. If you would, take a circle, take your pen and circle around that last statement there at the end of number 2, where it says Deuteronomy 28, 15 through 68. You remember with me that 700 years earlier, Moses had given the law, God had given the law through Moses, and then in the first 15, 14 verses of that chapter, in chapter 28, The blessings, if you keep this law, here's all the blessings that you're going to have. And then if you break this law, here are the curses that are going to come. And we see the curses prophesied even in that day that over these next few hundred years, as the people are disobedient and not keeping the covenant, that there's going to be the curses of that. And that involves exile, that involves disease, that involves hardship, that involves the loss of even family. Notice number three, Micah's message says this, Micah's salvation prophecies, the prophecies of salvation, fulfill the Lord's oath to Abraham. So God keeps his promise to Abraham, and we see that reference in 7 verse 20, which we're going to see in a few moments, and also his promise through Moses that Israel would be restored after exile. So there is this promise that God says that, yes, judgment is going to come, but I'm going to restore you. I'm going to make it all things right for those who are my faithful people. Look at number four. Micah's prophecy that Messiah's origins, that's the Messiah's origins, are in David, you remember that's the chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, fulfills the Davidic covenant. And put above that, Bethlehem. This is where we see the prophecy that the Messiah is going to be born in the city of David, Bethlehem. Well, that's, that's part of this. We see that God is fulfilling his covenant promises. Look at number five. Micah's prophecies that Israel will be forgiven. They will know the Lord and keep his law in their hearts and all fulfill the promises of the new covenant in Moses' prophecies. So we see that Micah is saying that eventually we're going to see God work in Israel. Now we know right now there is a great difficulty in seeing Jews accept the gospel. By and large, their hearts are very hardened against the gospel. But the Scripture gives light and Micah gives light to the fact that there's going to come a day that many Jews, potentially, we're going to see a great coming to the Lord among them. And we want, to, we want to pray for that. We want to see what God is going to do and exactly how and when those prophecies are going to be fulfilled. We do not know, but we have been called to continue to see that God is working in not only the world at large, but even in and still through the people of Israel. Look at number six. God's people everywhere, God's people everywhere in every generation, put above that me, okay? Put above that me, your, your, maybe your name. God's people everywhere in every generation can be spiritually strengthened, can be spiritually strengthened by Micah's salvation prophecies to fo- faithfully walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Not only f- we can can we be encouraged to faithfully walk in Him, but we can also be encouraged to joyfully await the triumph of god's kingdom you see church family as we have studied micah as you really go back and you look through that and next week we'll have all of the outlines where you can look at that but even better than the outlines you have the word that's been preached so you can go back and read it and see it as you internalize the message of micah it can encourage you to be faithful to god and to look forward, listen to this, and look forward to God fulfilling the ultimate promises of his salvation, which is the great restoration when heaven becomes the reality for you and when he comes again and he receives his own to himself and we enter into the next era of his restoration, things going back in some ways to the glorious nature before the fall. We look forward to that. That's promised in the book of Micah. Very, very important for our Christian belief. Look at number seven. God's people can always be assured that he who calls you is faithful, and he will do what he says. If you study the message of Micah, you can be encouraged in that, that God is faithful. He always does what he says. And you know what? I've included underneath number seven several places there where you can go and look up that sentiment, that very statement that he who calls you is faithful. Friends, if God has called you to faith in him, he is going to fulfill his promises for you. He is going to deliver on every single one of them. He knows what he is about in your life. And while sometimes you look at the circumstances of your life, the hardships, maybe your own mistakes, your own sin, your own rebellion that has had consequences, or maybe the things that were from someone else or something else. Maybe it's not even about a particular sin that you committed or somebody else committed against you, but it is part of living in a fallen world. Listen, in Micah we see that God is faithful to his people, that you can trust in him, and that he knows what he is doing. He is working all things after the counsel of his will to make his name great and to lift up his true people. That's what he loves to do. So let's remember just a few things as we blast into this final text. Remember, the book starts off with Micah's name, which means who is like what? Yahweh, or YHWH. Haven't we been saying that lately? Why? That's how it literally appears in the text, is YHWH. Okay, so we even added the vowels of A and E to make it Yahweh, but this is God's personal name. Notice here, this is the beginning, at the very beginning in Micah chapter 1, we see that this is the word of the Lord that came to Micah, which means who is like Yahweh. That's going to be very important as, we've, as we look in just a moment at the next text. It immediately, fill it in, it immediately, increasingly, this is the, the, the prophecy of Micah, immediately and increasingly rips into Israel for her unfaithfulness to God. Um, you remember with me, many of these texts that we read were very jarring. They were very alarming. They, they, were, they were cutting. They were harsh. And some, sometimes we were reading them and you, you, you asked the question, what in the world does that mean? And you, we, we've taken the time to work through those so that we can see the, the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. We can see that Deuteronomy 28 is true, that if you disobey this word, that there's, there's great horror that is going to come. And there was trouble that was coming their way. Notice here with me. It declares God's, ju- God's coming judgment for their sin. Now, friends, this is just as relevant for us today to see in the Old Testament that God's people are being warned that when you sin, that there is consequence, And sin is a big issue because God is a holy God and we're called to be like him. We're called to obey him. We're called to come him. Well, the Old Testament law shows us how holy he is and how unholy we are. And so it's in the book of Micah that we see his judgment proclaimed, and this is a warning to us. This is a great warning to his people everywhere in every generation that there is blessing for coming to God in obedience and humble obedience, and there is great curse for rebelling against God. Now this is, you say, well, I don't like that. I just want blessings for everyone. Everyone. That's 2020 thinking. In 2020, we think, oh, there's money for everybody. <laughs> you know, it, there's everything for everyone. It's however you want it. You know, we, we, we don't like to look at certain realities. And we don't, we don't like to look at objective truth that comes from the creator of the universe. We talked about this a lot in Starting Point over the last little bit. All the Starting folk, Point folks could tell you that we look at the fact that there's two ways that, well, there's only one way to come to God, but there's, there's another way that people think that they're coming to God. People could like to come to God on their own terms, but that's impossible. We don't come to God on our own terms. We come to God on His terms, and that's what the Bible is all about, learning to come to God on his terms. In this, we see that he is holy, that we are not, that he judges sin, but, but look at the third it. The third it is this message of Micah also repeatedly shows that God will save and fill it in, not in spite of, but through his judgment. God will save through his judgment. He, he doesn't remove the judgment as if there, there is no judgment. No, he still judges sin. He just does it in a most unlikely way. He does it by pouring out his judgment upon his own son. So put out there to the side, Jesus. God judges our sin through Jesus, and that is how his salvation comes. And that's, that's not only in Micah, but that's in every one of the minor prophets. That's in one of every one of the major prophets And we see that that is the picture of all of the covenants of the Old Testament is that there's coming a Messiah. There is coming a Savior. Now, that's, that's very, very important. If you're a new student of the Bible, that's very important for you to begin to grasp that picture that God saves through His judgment. They are not separated, but they work beautifully together for those whom He saves. Look at the last one there. It ends with the question... Who is like Yahweh? So it begins in that by naming Micah, because that's what Micah means, who is like Yahweh. But we actually see the question, who is like Yahweh? And then this ending describes his character. It describes his character. So that's where we're coming to um, this morning. Now, look with me at Micah chapter 7, verses 8 through 20. Micah chapter 7, verses 8 through 20. So here we are in this last chapter. We've already studied several of these verses, um, but we're going to just kind of remember what's in this last chapter, and it's really in this last hymn that is part of Micah, Um, and then we're going to study verses 18, 19, and 20. Now, in the past, I've shared with you this idea that in the Bible... In the, in the Hebrew writings and in Greek writings, there is something called a chiastic structure. And it's a, it's a structure not just of poetry. It's not only found in poetry. It's also found in narrative writing. It's also found in, in other storytelling of the Bible. Um, even in the letters of Paul, we see chiasms that are, th- that are there. So this is a chiastic structure, and you're going you're to see that there's statements that build on one another to a central point, and then they reflect one another after that. And what it does is it brings emphasis to a central point. And we can see that in Koine Greek, and we can see that in Hebrew. So, both Old Testament and in New Testament. I want you to notice here this this conclusion. Micah chapter 7, verses 8 through 20 is the conclusion, and it's God's glorious character and plan. God wants us to know his character, God wants us to know his plan. That's why He's given us His Word. That's why He's revealed Himself through the ages, that we might know what He is like. Uh, the Westminster Confession rightly says that the chief ends of man is to know God, is to glorify God and forever, to know Him and to glorify Him. And so, we, we want to recognize that this, is, that this is what God's intent is in this, that we would know His character. People are confused about what God is like. I've mentioned several times from this pulpit that we, that we see little hints all around culture that there's confusion over what God is like. Um, sometimes God is caricatured as a God with a big beard sitting on a fluffy cloud somewhere up in the heavens. And that, that really is as deep as many people's view of God. They, they, they don't look at the sunrise. They don't look at a, a, a coral reef. They don't look at the beauty of the design of whether it would be a human body or a falcon or whether it be um, the, the works in physical nature uh, through a microscope or through a telescope. They don't see God in all of that. Hugh Ross wrote a great book called the fingerprints of God. And he was a mathematician. He's an uh, astrophysicist, is what he is. And he says when you look at the physical universe, it, it has God's fingerprints all over it. His design and his construction, his, his order is, is a beautiful picture. His, his glorious work in construction. But that's not the view that many have. Many are confused about God, but here we see that God wants us to know Him. He wants us to know what He's like. He wants us to know, and so that's what He's doing through the ages, revealing Himself. And so we see in this, in, in chapter 7 and verse 8, and it goes all the way to the end of the book, you see that with me, look at verse 8 with me, in chapter 7 and verse 8, you can see it on the screen or you can see it in your Bible. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. And that's exactly what he does with Jesus. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his what? his vindication. He's going to vindicate me. So what we see in this is, is that there's a problem with sin. And God even uses the the nations of the world to show Israel that you've sinned against me and I'm going to cause you to look up to me. And so he brings the Assyrians, he brings the Babylonians, he brings the Persians, and these come against Israel, or he brings locusts, or he brings pestilence, or he brings famine. And he causes his people to say, what is going on? What have we done? And they look up to God again, and then they see the salvation of God. So God is showing that he's a holy God, that we're a sinful people, but he's also a God who saves. So look here with me in verse 8 and in the box that's there. In verse, chapter 7, verses 8 through 10, we see, and this is the box that is there, the first one, the anger of Yahweh, the trampling of the enemy, and the rhetorical question. Now look at verse 10, what it says. Here's that first rhetorical question. Then my enemy will see and, sh- and shame will cover her who said to me, where is the Lord your God? You remember that, that the, nation, uh, the, the nations that are coming to judge Israel will come and look at them and laugh and say, where is your God now, buddy? You know, we, we, and mock their faith. And then we see that it moves on. So the next section, verses 11 through 13, we see, and the, look there at the box on the page, the middle box, Yahweh rebuilds Jerusalem and gathers nations so we see his salvation look at verse 11 look what it says a day for the building of your walls in the day the boundaries shall be far extended you remember he's going to not only give them back the walls of their city but he's going to enlarge their city and we see in verse 12 and 13 that this is talking about all the glory of God's salvation is going to go far beyond Israel. Look at verse 12. It says, in that day they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt and from Egypt to the river and from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain. This is the picture that come out of the world there's going to come people to God through his salvation and his working. So the first box shows God is, is angry with sin. He's going to judge sin. He's going to trample it down, and eventually he'll even trample down the enemy and what we're going to see in just a moment, the enemy of sin, but he's going to rebuild. He's going to bring his salvation. That's the picture of Jerusalem. Now, look at the apex of it. Look at, the, look at what this is coming to. The chiastic structure then comes to chapter 7, verses 14 and 15. Look at 14. We studied this last week. Shepherd your people with your staff. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance. This is what God's going to do. Who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land. So they're not in the wilderness, they're not in the desert, they're not in dangerous places. They're now coming into places with green pastures. You Remember we looked at this. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. You remember that? They They went into the promised land 700 years earlier and the first fields that they came into were lush, beautiful fields where as those travelers coming out of the wilderness and out of Egypt, eventually out of the wilderness, they're coming into the promised land and God shows them a land flowing with milk and honey. God gives to them, listen, a glorious place to live. He is showing them his generosity and his goodness. So look at this in the box that is there. Yahweh generously shepherds Israel into luxurious land and security. Remember, they will dwell alone there in that place. They're not going to have rivals coming after them. There's not going to be a security problem. And so we see it building to that. And as it moves away, it moves away in a similar structure, but... A little bit of study, like you're seeing right now, and as you're learning right now, the real picture is is the beautiful emphasis on God's shepherding, on God's generosity, on God's goodness. That's what we see in these verses, that it's showing us the beautiful character of God, and it always emphasizes that apex. Now, as it comes back down, we looked also last week at verse 16, look what it says the nation shall see and be ashamed of all their might they shall lay their hands on their mouths their ears shall be deaf they shall lick the dust like a serpent like the crawling things of the earth remember this verse 17 in the middle they shall come trembling out of their strongholds they shall turn in dread to the lord our god and they shall be in fear of you again we see that god is just the opposite of building up jerusalem He is going to come after his enemies. Yahweh humbles nations and then they look to him eventually and will recognize who he is. And then it comes down to that rhetorical question where we come to our text this morning where it's 18 through 20. Look what it says. Who is a God like you? Doing what? Pardoning Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights, look at this, he delights in what? Steadfast love. He will again have compassion upon us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Verse 20, and you will show faithfulness to Jacob, and there it is, steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. So this final, these final words in this beautiful prophecy is all about a picture of God's character of his mercy and his grace. So shame on us for thinking that the minor prophets are all about judgment without mercy, right? That's wrong thinking. God is certainly a judge, a holy judge against sin. But we see that in his judgment, there is this beautiful, beautiful mercy. And that's what chapter 7, verse 14 and 15 is showing. Let's flip the page and notice here, the look of verse 18 19 20 our last three verses in just a few moments look at verse 18 who is a god like you so there it is this is sandwiched the whole book of micah is sandwiched between this statement it starts out with the word of the lord came to micah and his name means who is a god like yahweh and here we see who is a god like you who is a who is a yahweh like you and do we see his name? You see, verse 18 is this, the God of wondrous character. And that's, the, that's what it's about, that who is like you? You know, the word wondrous is a good word. What, what is wondrous? What, what does that mean? What, what's the root word of that? Wonder, right? And wonder has to do with amazement. It has to do with, like, questions. It, 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 like, has to do with how. I mean, that, that, that's wonder. When you, how many of you have stood at Niagara Falls? Have you ever gone and stood at Niagara Falls? You cannot stand there at the falls and not go, whoa. I mean, you feel it. You get soaking wet. I mean, the whole thing, you know, the, the whole thing is overwhelming. Some of you have gone to Yosemite, and you stand there at the base of El, Cap- El Capitan, and you look up, 3,000 feet of rock, and then some turkey climbs it without a rope. I don't fully understand that. That's wondrous, too. But, but it, and it's amazing. That's, in fact, wondrous, too. That even glorifies God in that God made a human that, that can do that. It's amazing. You expect a squirrel to do it, but a human? I mean, a human? And I mean, or, or you stand there, you, you know, there's any wondrous things, many wondrous things are around us. In fact, we use another word, wonderful. It's full of wonder. Full of wonder. Um, th- this is a glorious word. And when we when we think about who God is, that's what Micah's asking. Who, where do you get a God like this? I mean, what other God is like this? I mean, you say, well, wait a minute, there are no other gods. Yes, but not in much of the world's mind. In fact, the world creates all kinds of, in fact, that happens even right here in this town, maybe in this room, that we have other gods, we have idolatry, that that we're worshiping other things, and you say, Micah is saying, the thing that you're worshiping is nothing like this god. It's not as great, it's not as glorious, it's not as wonderful, it's not as powerful, it's not as mighty, it's not as holy, and it's not as merciful. This is a wondrous God, and that's what Micah is saying. In fact, God in his sovereignty raises up a prophet whose name is Micah. I'm sure he gives him the name Micah from before the foundation of the world, and God says, I'm going to use him to help people understand who I am. And so we see it here in verse 18. Who is a God like you pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression from the remnant of his inheritance? He's saying, who does this? Now that that word pardoning iniquity, I want you to see this, pardoning iniquity. Here's the idea. It's the, the lifting of the burden. It's the lifting of the burden. He pardons our iniquity. He, he lifts the burden of it. You know, if you've broken the law and the weight of the law and your crime sits upon your shoulders, when um, the court system works through the process and there is an opportunity for some to be pardoned from that, and that's as if the pardon comes and the burden comes is lifted. If a governor pardons someone, if a president pardons someone, the burden of that that conviction is lifted from them, and that's what God does. He pardons, He lifts the burden of that iniquity. And look what it says in another way, it says, and passing over transgression. This idea of passing over transgression is the overlooking of a fault. Um, we see that in Proverbs 19.11, that it's a, it's a glorious thing when a brother forgives another brother and he overlooks the fault. Now, we want to be careful to say something here uh, that that, that's, that doesn't mean that God doesn't deal with it. God does deal with it, but when we look at the way he deals with it, he is removing that. We, we see the passing over a transgression we, we see in the way that he delivered Israel was the death angel passed over the homes of his people where the blood of the lamb was there. And so he overlooks their sin because of the blood of the lamb. This is what would be representative of their cleansing, of their deliverance, the passing over of transgression. And notice this. Look at verse 18. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant? Circle that, the remnant. Remember that? For the remnant of his inheritance. These are the ones who are his true people. Not all of Israel is, was his people. Not all of Israel is his people. We, we see that there's a remnant that is there. And even in this day and time, in this society, there's a remnant of those. That remnant means to remain. You can fill that in here. Remnant is those who remain with him. They don't run away and worship other gods. They, they may get off track for a while, but he judges them and they come back. These are the ones who remain with him. They don't stay with other gods. There were many Israelites who never came back we, we've dug through all of the tells and all of the various um, ruins that are there throughout uh, Israel, and we find that there's pagan gods mixed with, with indications of, of Jewish people of, of the nation of Israel, and we see that many of them have this mix of gods. Well, we're not ta- they're not the remnant. That's, that's not God's people. He said, you shall have no other gods before me. That was the first one of even his central Ten Commandments. But we see here that there is a remnant that remain with him. And John chapter 15 is a beautiful picture of that in the New Testament. Jesus talks about the fact that you are to abide in me, remain in me. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, If you obey me and you stay with me, it shows that you are indeed mine. But when we don't remain with him, we see that we're not his. You see, this is those who survive the judgment. This is those who are delivered. This is God's great plan of salvation. He delivers the remnant who are truly his. Now, notice this in verse Um, 18. it says, he does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. Two key things here that I want you to see. One, he does not retain his anger forever. That means God relents. He relents of his anger. And the only reason he does that, and we see why, you see the word because, and you can circle that, because this reveals why he forgives and relents, and why does he do that, He delights in steadfast love. God would far rather forgive, God would far rather pardon than to judge to condemnation. He delights in steadfast love. Now, that phrase, encircle it on your page there in that box, steadfast love, that phrase is a very interesting Hebrew word. And it's a Hebrew word that doesn't have a good English equivalent. It's one of those words that's really special. And the more you try to get a hold of it, sometimes it slips away. Um, And and what I mean by that is is that you will see chesed translated mercy, faithfulness, kindness, steadfast love. You say, well, which is it? Well, it's all of those. It's all of those mixed up in one. Let me give you an example. If if I had a picture of a house, and I put it up there, picture of a house, um, you would say, and I'd say, what is that? You'd say, well, that's a house. But if I had a picture of a house with a big yellow bow tied around a tree in the front yard and a soldier in fatigues with his rucksack standing there and the family gathering around him, would you say, oh, he came to his house? You wouldn't say that. You would say he came home. The word home is an interesting word to us. And in fact, there's other languages, but they don't have an equivalent of that like English does. It, it's just, it's kinda hard to make up the word that adequately captures everything that makes home, home. Home is the place where you belong. Home is the place that's yours. Home is the place where you lay your head and you, you are, are there because it, you belong there. And there's something that, you know, when you've been on a long trip, it's not so much that you look forward to being back in your own house so much as you look forward to being back where home is, where everything is familiar to you. Well, just like the word home is special and it has a lot of meaning to it that house doesn't have, that's similar with this word said. It's the idea of mercy and faithfulness and steadfast love. It's that, st- that's, it's st- think about steadfast love. It's love that doesn't waver. It's love that is is strong and doesn't get blown around. It's faithful love, even when there's unfaithfulness. It's a kindness that perhaps is not deserved. It's the idea of mercy. And so, notice in verse 18, we see that this is the heart of God. He doesn't retain his anger forever because he loves, he delights in steadfast love. That's who he is. He really loves that. Look at verse 19. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. See, verse 19 is pointing to the gospel. This is the good news and fill it in here, it's the gospel, it's the mercy, it's in mercy that God meets our need. He sees us needy and broken, and he comes and he meets our need. And how does he meet our need? Look at verse 19. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. So here's the idea. This is a term of war. This is a term of war. And when you, when you tread the enemy under your foot, that, mean, that means that your boot is on him. I mean, back in World War II, there were pictures, you know, and Uncle Sam and everything else, and there was Hitler, and it was very often you would see these images depicting the enemy of Japan or the enemy of Germany, either one, and you know, perhaps their boot would be on freedom, or their boot would be on the, the head of an American Uh, a symbol of America. And the idea was that, that, I mean, that's what, to tread over them, that means that they're under your boot. Notice this, that this is the picture of what God does with our sin. He victoriously vanquishes our sin. God victoriously crushes our sin. He puts it underfoot, And how does the Father do this? The Father sacrifices His Son for us. For God so loved the world that He did what? He gave His only Son that whosoever would believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. This is the gospel. This is the mercy. It comes through the Son. The Father sacrifices His Son for us, and the Son lays down His life for us. So we see Father and Son and Spirit. If you look and see how the the Spirit is completely involved from the Garden of Gethsemane to the cross, we see that the Spirit is working Father, Son, and Spirit. The great Trinity of God's heart is laying down the Son for our deliverance. And when He does this, he vanquishes our sins. So look at verse 19 again. I want to read it and see if this doesn't make more sense. He will again have compassion upon us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. What is that picture? That is the idea is that our sin is G O N E gone, it's over. It's gone. And this is why we see God talk about his people being called blameless, being made holy, being righteous. We see in the New Testament, listen, if you think the New Testament every time it mentions saints, if you think that that's one of those pillars around St. Peter's Square in Rome, you've missed the point of what Jesus did for everyone who believes in him. He calls us saints. He makes us holy. He washes away all of our sin. He puts it under his boot. He, he crushes its power. In fact, we see that all the way back in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 3, when it's declared that the seed of this woman is going, he's his going to crush the head of the serpent. This is the glorious gospel of Christ, and it's in Micah. The great mercy of God. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12, Isaiah 43, Psalm 103. Do you know what Psalm 103 says? Psalm 103 says he takes our sins and he he casts them out as far as the east is from the west. Now, I know some of y'all aren't great navigators, but let me tell you this. East is from the west, the two never meet. You can always go east on the earth, and you can always go west on the earth. They never meet. And so here we see that as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. This is the picture of total redemption, of total mercy. And that's what God does with his people, and it's right in Micah. Look at the last verse in verse 20. This glorious last verse of this entire thing, and it shows and it says something very important. You will show faithfulness to Jacob. And then here it is steadfast love, that's that word again, has seed or has said to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. You see, God keeps his promise of salvation. He made a promise to Abraham, and he made a promise to Jacob. We see this picture. And God's recipients of the promise, God is remaining true to that. And in faithfulness, and these two things are very interesting. Up in verse 20, in the first line, you see faithfulness. Put an underline under that. And in steadfast love, you've already circled that. Notice this. In faithfulness, God keeps his promise. But it's in steadfast love that God makes up for our broken promise. God comes in steadfast love, in unwavering love, love that cannot be shaken. He comes and he remains faithful even when we are not. This is why it's mercy, that God shows us mercy. Oh, the glory of God's salvation. He doesn't just keep his promise and look at us and say, oh, I kept my promise, you didn't keep yours. Instead, he says, I kept my promise, you didn't keep yours, but I'm going to save you from your own brokenness. This is the glorious nature of God's forgiveness. Whoever looks at God, a holy and righteous God, and says, what an ungracious, unloving, wrathful God that he is, my friends, they simply have not read the book. The book shows us from beginning to end that he is a holy God, he is a God filled with wrath, and he pours out his wrath on himself to save his own. And he shouldn't, in logic, do that. It seems extremely illogical to us to do that, but in his perfect wisdom, that's what he does, and it makes perfect sense to him that he comes and he saves those who come to the Messiah. Now, I want you to see another aspect of how he delights in this. In verse 18 and 19, we see another chiasm. Um, This is a chiastic structure. Look what it does, and they each relate to the one um, associated um, far afoot from the from the pinnacle one, but look what it says. Who pardons our sin, he forgives the transgressions of the remnant. This is working its way through 18. He does not stay angry forever, but here it is. Here's the pinnacle. He delights to show mercy. God delights in it. He loves to show mercy. He loves to show steadfast love. And he will again come and have compassion. He will tread our sins under his foot, put out there to the side, Jesus, that's how he does it. And look at this, you throw all of our iniquities into the depths of the sea. So it's like this, Um, the writer of, of Micah in this last section perhaps was written by someone else that came along and put the tag on the end of it, which happens a lot in biblical writing because it it mentions his name and associates his name with this. Um, But whether it was Micah or whether it was another writer putting the end on it, we see this idea that he is emphasizing that God delights in mercy, and in his delighting in mercy, he comes to to deal with our sin in a way that we could never deal with it. This is the beautiful picture of of his character, and it highlights his mercy all the way through. Now, remember, back at Micah chapter 6 and verse 8, we should know that this is how it would end, because look at the box on the page right there with the darkened text. Look what he says. In Micah 6, verse 8, one of the key passages for the whole book, he says, He has told you, O man, what is good. And that, we, don't, we don't mean that, and I'm like good, fair, excellent, whatever. It's not that. No, this is, this is right. He has told you, O man, what is right, what is good, truly good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, not be unjust, but to do justice. And then here it is. To love what? Kindness has said. This is, the, this is the picture of that word to love kindness. God calls us to do what he does. God does justice against our sin through his son on the cross in order to bring kindness into mercy. And he's calling us to do the same thing. He has told you, O oh man, what is good? What does the Lord require of you but to do what he does? And that's to do justice, to love kindness, and look at that, and to walk humbly with your God. That's what they weren't doing. That's what they were being called to do. And that's what we are being called to do. We're not being called to live our lives independent from God. Americans are really good at that. We can even be very religious and go to church. Maybe Sunday after Sunday, never miss. Got all the stars on the little bulletin board, whatever it is. And yet we can live our lives very independent from God. God calls us to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with him. And the only way that we can do that is through the mercy that he has shown us in Jesus Christ. This is why the gospel should be such a big deal to us. This is why we should never get over that cross. We can never get over what that represents, that the Holy One who created the universe laid down His life for all who will come to Him and believe. The whole book of Micah is filled with the wonder of God's holiness, the great fear of His judgment, and the great glory of his mercy. And so my question to you, or I have a few questions for you, for you to think about, and I, I want to encourage you to go home and think about these questions. I want to encourage you to talk about these questions with your family, and um, maybe this would be a good dinner conversation or an after-dinner conversation between you and your wife or you and your kids. But ask yourself these questions. Number one, how have the judgment passages of Micah Helped you to better see the character of God? Did you used to run away from the judgment passages? But we've taught through them. I pray that somehow that these have helped you. And there's some specific things that they can do, and I hope that you've allowed them to do it. How have the judgment passages helped you to better see the character of God? Number two, how have the judgment passages of Micah helped you to better see the character of his people? Maybe put out there to the side my own heart. How have these judgment passages helped you see your own heart? Number three, how have the mercy statements, the mercy statements of Micah, helped you better see the character of God? I hope you can talk about that as a family. I hope you can th- write about that in your journal. Maybe you need to go back and look through, I mean, it's only seven chapters. It's kind of easy to pick out those mercy statements, to go back and look at them. Maybe go back and look at the sermon notes for the last few weeks and say, well, I threw them away. Shame on you. I mean, we, we, we print them out for you. You have them. You ought to keep them. You ought to, you ought to have somewhere where you can go back and look at them. Now. Shame on you. I shouldn't say that too much. I don't. I love you. But what I'm going to say to you is that next Sunday we will have a stack of them in the back where all of them are there with the answers. So all of them will be put in one document. But I want to encourage you to not let these messages leave you untouched. We should should consider these things. Look at number four. How have the mercy statements of Micah affected your relationship to God? I hope they have. I hope that you can start to think about that and think through how has Micah affected my view of God's salvation, my view of God's character, my view of my days with Him. Number five, have you considered these things? Perhaps you should. Let's stand together for prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have given us Micah's prophecies. We thank you for working through this man 2,700 years ago. We thank you that for 2,700 years you have protected these words so that we could have them today. Lord, I thank you for all the scribes and all of the ones who would protect these scrolls. Lord, I thank you for the theologians that have studied in depth what you've said and have sought to help us to understand the history of Israel and your work with your people. Lord, we thank you for these words, faithful words, words that show us, Lord, who you are, Now, Lord, I pray that we would allow these words to come down into our lives in such a way that we remember that you are a God of holiness, that you are a God of righteousness, that you are not like us, and that there's no other gods like you, because not only are you righteous, but Lord, you're also merciful. Lord, I pray that we would run to you in your character, that we would not run away in our sin, but Lord, that we would run to your forgiveness and that we would allow you to transform us from the inside out. Lord, I pray that Micah would help us to grow as strong Christians in the struggles of this life, that we would remember that you are the God who keeps his promises and who sees us all the way through. Now Lord, I pray for those who in this day need to come to you in faith, that they need to receive the promises that you've made. Lord, I pray that they would do that. I pray that they would not continue in either confusion or unbelief, but they would run to the God who would lay down his life for them. Lord, help us to be faithful unto your words. Lord, give us your spirit that we might obey in all things.